My name is David Scales, and I'm a medical sociologist and assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. I wrote this essay about how during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, staffing ratios reached untenable levels at an understaffed hospital in New York. My patient, Mr. L, said in halting English, I trust you. Do what you need to do to save my life. It was late March 2020, and I was a hospitalist at a community hospital in New York City. Gowned and masked in personal protective equipment, a physician assistant and I called Mr. L's wife and sister, with the help of an interpreter, to make a joint backup plan if he continued to get sicker. For Mr. L was breathing 100% oxygen from a specialized mask and getting worse. He and his family needed to know that a ventilator might come next. The next morning, Mr. L looked haggard after a night of not sleeping. His lips were blue, and he was nearly doubled over in a vain attempt to catch his breath. The consulting intensive care unit, or ICU physician, could tell from the doorway that the next step was intubation and a ventilator. Initially, it felt like a victory. Finally arranging the needed escalation of care for a patient when many others were still waiting, panting, on maximum oxygen therapy in their hospital beds until they, too, were in extremis. At peak, our hospital had nearly 100 patients with test-confirmed coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19, who required oxygen. Around 20 were on 100% oxygen masks like Mr. L, usually an indication that they should be in intensive care. But they were not in the ICU, in part because the ICU itself, designed for 20 patients maximum, already had more than 30 patients in doubled-up rooms. The hospital was overwhelmed. When all the data are analyzed, it would not surprise me to find that hospitals with the least capacity for surge staffing suffered the most excess deaths. We did not run out of ventilators, although some days we came quite close. But machines alone cannot save lives. A complex interconnected network of healthcare specialists works in synchrony, like an orchestra performing a well-rehearsed symphony to ensure that critically ill, ventilated patients survive. Ventilators rely on well-trained and specialized nurses and respiratory therapists to function. Dialysis instruments require a qualified nurse to manage the complex array of chemicals and reagents and monitor the patient's response. No, machines alone cannot save lives, just as musical instruments alone cannot perform a concerto. And in Mr. L's case, the machines were not enough. Soon after intubation, his blood pressure dropped, his kidneys failed, his body shut down, organ by organ, and he passed away five days later, despite being a healthy man in his mid-60s before contracting COVID-19. Sadly, his story is not unique. Two weeks later, I was redeployed from my hospitalist work to a temporary ICU in the post-anesthesia care unit in the same hospital, staffed by a single critical care nurse who was caring for four patients on ventilators with intricate IV drips. The hospital redeployed operating room and other nurses as staff extenders to assist the ICU nurses in procuring medications and positioning patients. Still, these were patients so medically complex that they might have had a two-to-one or even a one-to-one patient-to-nurse ratio in other times. Nurses taking care of the patients in the doubled-up rooms in the ICU face similar ratios with even more complex patients, about half of whom required dialysis. As patient-to-nurse ratios increase, patient safety is in jeopardy, with a number of studies showing that a patient's risk for complications rises and their chances of leaving an ICU alive go down with these increasing ratios. 
Nurses are a patient's first line of surveillance and are often the earliest to find and respond to changes in patient's condition. ICUs in particular grew out of a need for more specialized nursing with higher levels of monitoring for the sickest patients, and better patient-to-nurse ratios have been associated with lower risk for pneumonias. Data are less available for respiratory therapists, but there is reason to believe that patient-to-therapist ratios are just as vital for patient safety. Our three respiratory therapists were stretched thin covering the entire hospital, including more than 30 ventilated patients in our ICUs, another 20 patients on the regular medical floors on such high oxygen that they would normally be in ICUs, and another 50 or so patients on varying levels of oxygen. I worried that our overburdened care teams might miss details that nurses and respiratory therapists often catch, such as subtle changes in a patient's condition, equipment problems, like nearly deflated endotracheal tube cuffs or the early signs of new infections or looming complications. Details that seem insignificant but affect how long a patient stays on the ventilator because each day on the ventilator increases risk for complications and death. Consensus guidelines on surge staffing during disasters or pandemics recognize that safe nurse and respiratory therapist ratios might not be feasible in a crisis and they suggest offloading tasks to extenders to try as best as possible to keep patients safe despite the surge. At the same time, our nurses and respiratory therapists were overwhelmed. Colleagues told me that patient-to-nurse ratios were still two to one in ICUs at the academic tertiary care center in our hospital system, where they were more accustomed to seeing higher patient volume and the sickest patients. It seemed shocking for our hospital to have unsafe staffing ratios and be deploying surge protocols when a larger, less overwhelmed hospital in our system sat only five miles away. Our administrators sounded the alarm of the hierarchy, but help was slow to come. Plans for more staff had not yet materialized, and we had no sense of when they would. During the peak of the outbreak, everyone was trying to help fill the gaps to keep the music playing. Doctors were taking out trash, nurses delivered patients food, gastroenterologists and certified nurse anesthetists redeployed as hospitalists and ICU nurses, respectively. All were taking on extra tasks to help each other. The status quo of doctors writing orders and a nurse or respiratory therapist carrying them out became untenable with so many critically ill patients. So doctors made ventilator changes manually, adjusted IV drips, and made sure breathing tubes were in the right position and sufficiently secured. These were things that would just happen on their own, a resident exclaimed, incredulous, as she told me about her ICU experience at the referral hospital before the epidemic. I just took it for granted. There were many near misses, as well as good catches. Endotracheal tube cuffs were found deflated. Equipment that should have been present was not. There was the time a patient was intubated, but the 10-year-old travel ventilator that we had planned to use was not working. We needed a respiratory bag to provide oxygen, fast, but it was nowhere to be found. Usually stocked in every emergency code cart, it had not been replaced after an intubation the day before. Thankfully, the ventilator started working in time, the piercing silence punctuated by mechanical breaths as we shared knowing glances acknowledging the gravity of that close call. With the aid of an iPad, I had the luxury of making rounds virtually with an intensivist, a physician who specializes in ICU care, who practiced in a city that had not yet succumbed to the epidemic. Other intensivists responded to the New York governor's call to volunteer, but patients did not need another conductor so much as they needed another violinist. We needed more people to suction patient secretions, secure breathing tubes, 
and respond as IVs ran out and ventilators honked with pressure and volume alerts. Flatten the curve is now a meme. Fewer people would die if we could keep the health system from being overwhelmed, we were told, and surely that has been the case. But many have died, including more than 20,000 in New York City alone. Why Mr. L died, why any individual patient dies, is nearly impossible to attribute to any specific failing. Clinical notes in the passive voice do not reflect the panicked eyes in masked faces struggling to keep up with the crushing clinical load. Even the dry arithmetic of nurse ratios misses the exhaustion and burnout that hit an understaffed team working a month of overtime. A chart reveals only that complications accumulate. Deaths rise, possibly faster in some hospitals than others. Would Mr. L have survived if we had more nurses and respiratory therapists? If the hospital had not been overwhelmed, we will likely never know. But we do know that thinly stretched healthcare teams can be dangerous, and many hospitals were understaffed before the pandemic. When all the deaths are counted, what will we find among the hospitals with the highest death rates? As Blacks and Latinos suffered death rates in New York at nearly twice the rate as whites or Asians, it is clear that comorbidities contribute, with social determinants of health a crucial predisposing factor. But we also need to understand whether overstretched staff became another organizational determinant of mortality in the midst of a crisis. How much of the disproportionate mortality that minorities faced can be explained because they sought care or were brought by emergency medical services to already overwhelmed and under-resourced safety net hospitals? Disparities in resources between well-off and under-resourced hospitals were assumed but tolerated before the pandemic. But the risk for complications or death between one hospital or another a few miles away was never so apparent. The stress test of the pandemic made such stark inequities impossible to ignore. During a public health emergency such as the COVID-19 pandemic, hospitals must track key patient safety metrics and resources during the disaster in real time, including staffing ratios. Given the known danger of high staffing ratios, especially in critical care, Hospitals should only implement surge protocols and staff extenders after exhausting efforts to distribute patients across city or regional hospitals. To that end, governments should support safety net and private hospital systems in the same region in developing integrated disaster and pandemic preparedness plans. Ultimately, we transferred some patients to the referral hospital. At first, I saw these transfers as helping us, a pressure valve to relieve the crisis at our hospital. And it did help us. But as the crisis went on, I increasingly saw it as a critical move for patients themselves. A lottery ticket to a less overwhelmed hospital with safer nursing ratios, more respiratory therapists, and, I hoped, a greater chance of survival. But such transfers came too late for Mr. L. Words from our last conversation echo in my head. I trust you, he said. Do what you need to do to save my life. And I wonder, do we, as a health system, really deserve that trust? Did we do all we could?